and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Killian Engler, Matt Radelak, and Mike Buckby. And I want to talk about the journey and path of a security pro. So when an InfoSec professional starts out on his journey, have you ever gotten conflicting advice about needing to get certifications versus getting work experience? So the following gripe got over 2,000 likes where someone's offering job advice that you'd need to prove that you need to know everything first. And then the individual offering the job advice learned everything because he had a good mentor. And so the truth is somewhat buried in between. What is your take? This is Matt Radelak. First of all, I think in all career fields, there's there's certifications or qualifications, and then there's work experience. And ultimately, people are looking for both. Having a certification alone doesn't necessarily mean that you have the practical application of the skills that you learn, but it might mean you have the great fundamental knowledge. I think the CISSP is a good example of one where it's a certification that requires that you have some amount of work experience before you can be issued the full certification. And so it balances it out well. Like me right now, I'm, I'm recruiting three resources for the IR team. So if anyone's listening is interested, go to the careers page on the Veronis website and you can find out more about those openings. And I'm looking for someone that has certifications, but also has work experience. And I think that it comes down to that's usually what gives the most qualified candidates. There are a lot of people in the in the security industry. It's a growing industry. And there are some people that have a lot of certs, but don't have any experience. And I don't think they're as qualified as someone that has both. Hey, Matt, this is Mike Buckby. I'm going to cede my time back to you for answering this and ask instead, what do you actually qualify as experience for the incident response team? Like what, what would be good experience? I, I would actually say uh, actually a wider range than just security experience. Even if someone that has like customer service experience, like they worked at a help desk or they have IT systems administration experience, like they were an active directory administrator. The more in touch you are with the technology that you're trying to secure, the better you're going to be at securing it. And so, you know, a great candidate for the IR team would be a well-rounded person, someone that does have a little bit of that IT background or maybe network administration background, but also has some hands-on security experience. So if I asked him a question like, you know, if you were going to create a secure network, how would you do it? And then on the reverse, and I said, and if I put a packet capture in front of you, could you interpret it and tell me about maybe, you know, what malware connection was occurring over this particular channel? And if they could answer all of that, I would hire that person. So at least from my experience, and I think, Matt, you're kind of spot on there, I tend to think that experience is worth in some ways more than certifications, especially in being able to see that people are able to adapt. Getting a certification is a specific kind of task. It tests specific skills. But really what I find more useful, at least in the people that I've interviewed and hired, is the ability to adapt to new situations. And as you mentioned, having almost a generalist background really helps. If they know at least a little bit about a lot of technologies, as opposed to being super over-specialized, that tells me that in a lot of cases, people can adapt and learn new things and learn new technologies more rapidly than if you were very kind of narrowly focused on something because you have that broader depth of knowledge and we can train up in people and on additional skills and then maybe even get certifications afterwards too. And this was Killian. So on the office, Michael Scott, he had, you know, this certificate on the wall behind him that said he was the proud owner of a Seiko watch. I just wonder if someone put that on the resume, positive certification or negative certification, like, would you hire that person? Like good reference or no? You know, I think that some people do, you know, embellish things a little bit or try to put in something humorous. And I think it really depends on the level of position that you're hiring. If it's a more junior person who maybe doesn't have the lengthy resume and they want to include something that says they're fun to work with, I might laugh at that. But if it's a more senior person, I would absolutely wonder if they would be behave professionally in front of clients. And really just to hit on what, what Killian said, if I could add one more thing, I think that in the security and infosec space, one of the most valuable pieces of experience you can have is like the general systems architecture. The number of people that I talked to who never really understood like how an, a corporate application works 
or how like, you know, there's that authentication portion, there's like a backend data storage portion, and then there's the network traffic and just being able to understand that the security of that application is greater than just the application itself. It's one of the hard things to teach. You know, it's one of the things that you really have to look for when you're hiring in the community. And then further down in your security career, what do you think about using public Wi-Fi? Most are weary of it, but would you not trust your skills and knowledge? How would you respond? So this is Killian. I absolutely would not trust public Wi-Fi. My skills and, and whatever else have absolutely nothing to do with it. I think the main takeaway and my main reason I won't is because I know enough to know that I don't know everything. And that's the biggest thing is there's always going to be something new, some new trick or exploit or, you know, a fake access point. And it's unnecessary risk, you know, so if I don't have to take that risk, why would I bother? I mean, again, my skills have nothing to do with it. And I could feel reasonably secure connecting to, you know, Wi-Fi on my phone, for example, or tethering. Again, you're still taking some level of risk, but why tempt fate, I guess? I'm curious how far this goes. Like, even if you're using a VPN, you won't use, like, public Wi-Fi? Yeah, the reason for that, Michael, is because many of the hacks that are available for wireless are happening between you and the router. So even that initiating connection before you have that SSL VPN connection, that application layer VPN connection is vulnerable. So like the cookie that's used, everything between you and that router could be unencrypted if someone has like a valid man in the middle, like a relay point. Even though you think you're completely encrypted, there are going to be portions of that traffic that aren't. And I think that's what these people are referring to. But at that point, you're, you're actually talking about like physical device compromise. You know that the people that are after you and are trying to gain access to your resources are there looking at you or monitoring that traffic and taking a jump of that traffic, actively trying to exploit you when you join that network. I mean, the the risk threshold there is pretty high. I could understand why some people refuse to do Wi-Fi, but a question I would ask is who's after you? You know, I think this comes to that overall risk equation. What's the likelihood that someone is going to attempt to target you that when you're on that public Wi-Fi, they're going to hijack your credentials versus, you know, the risk of not being able to do whatever it was that you needed that internet access for? For me, it's a last resort. You know, I use public Wi-Fi as a last resort. My hotspot is dead or, you know, maybe the bandwidth I've consumed all the bandwidth that was allotted and I can't get any more or I just need to send an email right away and I'm in a foreign country and I don't have any service, you know, because my cell phone doesn't have any signal. You know, there, there are times when you do it and you, you need to take the actions that you can, but at some point it just becomes a risk decision like anything else. So I mentioned these two contrasting career signposts as a way to highlight the maturity and responsibility required to work in security. And there's no better example of what happened with Brian Krebs where he he broke a huge story on the Ypro breach. And this company, they provide IT support and a lot of U.S. companies outsource to this company. And so Brian Krebs, he tried to get a comment from the company for several days. And then on the company's earnings call, they said that Brian's reporting is inaccurate. Then Brian dials in live and asks what he got wrong. How are you guys synthesizing the breach and how it unfolded? What's interesting to me is that you know, we talk a lot about the cost of cybersecurity and breaches. And typically that we talk about that almost like in terms of cleanup cost, but there is this reputational cost. And in this case, there's this, you know, financially material cost, which is something that, you know, the executives of the company need to, you know, relay to the investors, to the owners, the investors, and say like, this is something that can materially affect us. And they're downplaying that means that they don't take this, you know, as sort of a category of serious concerns and less about like, I'm trying to like say why pros, you know, doing something terribly wrong, but more that that's, I think a concern across a lot of different companies, that there's a lot of different companies that don't really think of this as something that, you know, is an existential threat to their company or something that's incredibly relevant to them in the same way.
same way that a lot of maybe more material things are, like if their headquarters caught on fire. So that's sort of my base layer of this, is that I think that's wrong. What, what I wrestle with with this particular article is, you know, in terms of this this company's maturity level and understanding what happened and articulating it, you know, where their, their resource was that was helping them prepare their earnings call notes. Because you do, you know, you do have a requirement to speak the truth on those things. And I think that, you know, that's, you're going to call out anyone in the information security industry. I would not call out Brian Krebs unless I was sure of whatever it is that I was saying. And I, and I think this is just a, an immaturity. This organization acted very immaturely in this case. And I think there will be reputational damage. There will be, you know, harm even beyond this data breach just based on this action and based on how that will how it will be interpreted by their clients. One of the guys that I'm friends with is a former law enforcement. And we got talking about, you know, different things. And, you know, when there's arrests and things like that, there's typically a debrief and then the lawyers, maybe internal affairs will investigate them. And he said the number one tip he could ever give to anybody is no matter how bad, whatever it is seems, you never lie to those people. You will always tell them honestly and accurately what happened and it'll go better for you. And that's solid advice here. This just smacks of spin uh, with these guys and cover up and, you know, maybe they just didn't bother asking the questions because they didn't want to know the answers. But yeah, this is going to be tremendously detrimental to their reputation, especially because they're in such a trusted position with these outsourcers. They often have some level, if not full access to their customers' networks and sensitive data and, and other parts of the operation. So being less than completely forthright and transparent is not going to look good to their customers. What do you guys think about how Amazon Web Services only has one on-call security engineer? They invested in creating repeatable automation for their security. And as a result, they don't have to have security engineers doing the grunt work, as the CISO said. But I'm a little skeptical because, you know, automation doesn't just self-create. There needs to be a human creating this security. And I also think of the latest hack of the police and FBI personal data because the websites weren't up to date and had outdated plugins. And so it's concerning. Do you think it's really possible that Amazon really automated everything, especially their security? 100%. Absolutely. I think that's what the most mature organizations are doing is they're automating as much as possible. Netflix is a great example. There's a lot of good public case studies on how Netflix will introduce chaos into their environment, and then they will learn how, what that chaos caused so they can write automation scripts on how to recover from that, even though they haven't had that chaotic event happen to them yet. You know, like randomly removing tape drives from server arrays or randomly disconnecting network connections because they essentially want to teach their systems how to self-heal. And I think Amazon could do that as well. You know, when, it, when you get down to the, the extent that you'd have to go to to truly automate everything, it would take a lot of resources. But in the end, you would need very little monitoring over those resources. You could get away with one person that responds to a handful of things to know that like automations failed or responses failed. You also have to remember that Amazon is largely providing services for others. And so the alerts that you'd need to get about your compromised endpoint isn't going to come from Amazon. It's going to have to come from your endpoint that you're operating in Amazon. I think that might be a distinction that isn't exactly clear in the article that like people have to provide their own security on the resources they rent from Amazon. So I would, I would agree completely with Matt on this point, just to operate at that type of 
scale, automation is just, there's no question about it. You must do it. Even in, you know, smaller, medium organizations, it's the, the volume of data they're dealing with, the volume of systems, the complexity of systems. It's becoming too much for people to keep in their minds anymore. I had a former colleague who was a network engineer, and he had been doing this for his whole career, 20, 30 years, and he could remember all the routing tables, and he would check them every single day to make sure that they were still correct. But there's only a very small subset of people that can do that and that have that type of skill. And again, with the complexity of these systems and what Amazon is running, people simply can't do that. So you need to automate as many of the processes as possible. And just like the article mentioned, people introduce risk. You know, if you're having a you know, bad day, or if you're out cold, you might miss something. Automation does whatever it's supposed to do over and over again. It's a defined, repeatable process. And it's not going to, you know, have a sick day or have an off day to miss something. So just a slightly different take on this. You know, we're talking a lot about automation, which yes, I think there is, but I think there's a fundamental architectural difference in this in which AWS is all public. And so, you know, unlike an internal, you know, data center where, you know, you think of it really as still like internal and external, everything is public. So nothing can be trusted. So the level of testing and upfront security before something is made public is you know, very different. You know, we talk sometimes about like zero trust. And I think Cindy, you actually wrote an article on this on the blog. So I mean, zero trust is sort of trying to take that same philosophy and bring it into the on-prem environment. The other piece of this is, you know, we talk about automation, but then I think there's a distributed nature to the security there. The individual teams for each of the services have, you know, a security responsibility to make sure that they're, you know, everything operates in the correct way and handles things. And so I believe they have one on call security engineer. I don't know if that exactly equates their role to someone who's in, you know, you know, a sock that's in, you know, a large bank or something. I think it's a very different role and a very different setup in general. But I think there's interesting lessons to learn from it. I also think it's important in terms of looking at this from kind of a macro perspective too. They probably put a lot of time and effort and money and resources into developing this automation. So I think that can be a scary upfront cost for a lot of people. Hey, we need to invest all this time and, and to, to build this out. But over the long haul, they're probably reaping the benefits in terms of ROI and cost and risk reduction, again, over the long haul too, which is, it's important to consider, I guess, especially kind of amortizing risk again and money over time. The longer you can get out of the automation, the time putting in to building it is going to pay lots of dividends down the road. You know, it's we, we talk about like, oh, AWS, it's big. They're at a different scale. It's really hard to conceptualize just like how much bigger they are actually. But I was working on this little thing and I was looking up what are the external IP addresses just for EC2, which is their main compute, the elastic compute service. And you think like, oh, it's going to be this little IP range or a couple. It is thousands thousands and thousands and thousands of IP ranges and they have a dedicated API endpoint that you can like query for it because you know there's so many and it changes so often and that's just that's just a world of difference than than most organizations so how do you think that say hospitals can incorporate new innovations of diagnostic technology with what AWS is doing in terms of how do you make healthcare organizations prioritize security in a way that minimizes risk? Because in a recent article, it seems that healthcare is still having trouble and they still see IT security as a cost center, an expensive resource. And the article got a little dramatic and said that the CEO would have to see a few corpses before security might get fully funded. But it also did mention 
mentioned that you can't fearmonger your CEO into giving you the budget. So based on your latest engagement with prospects and customers lately, what's a more realistic assessment of what's going on? Oh, I was going to say, I worked in healthcare IT for a decade, so I'm very familiar with this. And I think in most ways, this article is wrong. <laughs> Just flat wrong. You know, we talk a lot recently about like GDPR and the California Consumer Privacy Act and stuff, but really the, the big regulation that preceded all these in the U.S. has been HIPAA, which is, you know, the healthcare version of that that deals with data disclosures and taking things seriously. And what do we always say here? Like, it's just a constant refrain. Well, the weakest point is always people. There is no one who works in a hospital setting that does not know what HIPAA is and is not deathly concerned with not, like, making HIPAA violations. And it's that level of, just from a perspective and everyone working together, I think healthcare in general is much further ahead than other organizations just from that standpoint. And you can maybe quibble about like, well, you know, they don't have this or that tool. But in general, they take it very seriously and that, you know, they're working on making things better in a very material way. This is a good opportunity. I'm excited that I get to say I wholeheartedly disagree with you on that. While they may care about HIPAA and they may think about the privacy of information, I think that the healthcare industry at large lacks the understanding of patching the vulnerabilities in their systems. A lot of legacy healthcare devices are running Windows XP, Server 2003, Server 2008, and have absolutely like mission critical vulnerabilities on them that could negatively affect the lives of their patients. And that's why I, I unfortunately agree with the article. I think this was a prediction that's been made year after year that the healthcare industry won't wake up until lives are lost and the manufacturers of those devices that failed to patch them are held liable by lawyers and attorneys in, in courts because it's not profitable for them to update all these legacy devices. They want organizations to buy new ones and it's not profitable for these hospitals to buy new ones. And so unfortunately, this is an area where I actually think we need regulation. We need the government to come in and say, no, you know, manufacturers of medical devices, you need to update everything you've made since X year. You need to get rid of the vulnerabilities and everything you made since this time. And I don't think, unfortunately, as the article said, until we lose lives over it, that it's going to be a factor, that it's actually going to matter. Because they are good. I agree with you that hospitals are aware of HIPAA. They're concerned about like confidentiality of patient information, but that's the, at their level, at the application layer, not at the backend system level. All right. And this is an exciting opportunity because now I get to disagree with you before Killian gets to disagree with you. You know, I agree. There are a lot of systems that are running old things. And, you know, you ask about regulation. I think a lot of that is because there are regulations. I was working in digital radiography group and said the same thing to them. Like, hey, you need to upgrade some of these. And they're like, we would love to, except these are FDA approved computers, which is a weird thing to hear, but they really were because they're a medical diagnostic device in the same way that traditional x-ray is. And so, you know, this software is certified for this version of this and we can't change it because there is that concern. And that sort of gets a little beyond, you know, the software security and more into the software development life cycle and all sorts of other things and proper testing and everything else. But I think there's a balance there. And from what I've seen firsthand in organizations that are like this, everyone would love to see this stuff updated. There's no one in IT who's like, you know what's great? Windows XP. <laughs> You know, who wants to keep it around, but there's other issues. So I do think people should upgrade things. I just think it's a complicated mess. Like in many ways, to me, it mirrors a lot of what happens with IoT, where, you know, you have these systems that are set in a particular way and then can't or won't be updated for various reasons with a whole bunch of 
of negative consequences. So, so, and my question would be, what's it going to take to clean up the complicated mess? Because it's something that like the DoD community faces, because they have a lot of legacy systems, whether it's weapon systems, intelligence systems, you know, support systems that are vulnerable, and that it, those systems are, you know, supporting human life in a different way. What's what is it going to take to get those things to change, to get that maturity to come? That's my challenge. That's where I think the article gets it right in the fact that it's going to take a loss of human life to get the industry to take it seriously. Did I mention that this hospital experience was at the largest military medical base in the world? <laughs> Which it was. But I guess I don't see it as that much different. That, you know, you still have the the corporate aspects of much of this are much the same in the military as they are elsewhere. And that there is, you know, perhaps slow moving, but again, at a huge scale, you know, these things are being updated and dealt with. Always can be better, always could be more applied. But I will stand by that the, the core, you know, thoughts and processes are still a fundamental thing that are not in most other organizations the same way. And even if, you know, you were entirely up to date on everything, you know, people are still the weak link. And in both the military and in medicine, I think there's a much stronger security mindset than there is in you know other parts of the world. So now I'll jump in and both agree and disagree with both of you guys, because I'll split the difference. To Matt's point, I think in general, I would, would agree to a certain extent with him and to address, you know, Mike's point about some of the devices being certified and things like that. Um, what is it? 21 CFR part 11, or I'm probably butchering that, but it's one of the CFR regulations where they have to be validated and they're validated systems. None of that says that it can't be patched or updated or any of that. You just need to revalidate the system on it. And it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of times it becomes like a, a resource effort. So that, that tends to be a crutch that, oh, it's a validated system, but it can be updated. And nowhere in there does it say that you can't patch or update it. It just has to be revalidated again because I believe like a critical vulnerability that could result in the loss of life is something that they need to revalidate for. And I think it, it calls it out. Now, I'm not up to date on the regulation. I haven't read it recently, but from my old understanding. So there is a process in a way. The other problem too is with these outdated devices, a lot of organizations have started to move towards putting a rider in the contract. Like if I'm going to buy your you know, x-ray machine or whatever it is, and the software that runs it, you must guarantee that you're going to update it with the latest technology and can develop it that way. So you're not stuck you know, running an outdated machine with NT4 because that's the last time the you know, company provided an update and went out of business. So I think from the business perspective, they're trying to address this as well too. Now, to disagree with Matt ever so slightly also, healthcare organizations are aware of this. I've looked at probably one too many RFPs in my lifetime from organizations looking at this, and they fully understand and admit that they are forced to run some of this legacy software, and they're trying to work around it. I just got done reading some some requests not all that long ago, and that was kind of the first sentence is like, listen, we know we have a legacy environment. We have to deal with it, and we're working on it, but it's going to take a long time also. So I, I also don't think that they're just throwing their hands up going, eh, you know, Windows XP was pretty good, right? Let's just stick with that. I just want to thank Killian for entirely supporting me and having my back here against the evil powers of Matt as he came in and tried to disagree with me. And Killian, I'm sorry about all the bad things I said about you. High five. <laughs> hey, Mike, do we have a tool of the week? Yes. Our tool of the week is Inception. From the README on GitHub, Inception is a highly configurable tool to check for whatever you like against any number of hosts. It's a Go version of Snallygaster, which I had no idea what it was, but this is used for, it's a scriptable tool for finding out information on a system that's been compromised. So you initially compromise a system, then you run this tool and it rips through it and finds, oh, here's all the config files for these particular frameworks. Oh, here's this, you know, certain XS 
XSS vulnerability at the web root. And because it's written in Go, it's uh, single executable, so you don't need a bunch of other stuff to use it, and it's pretty slick. Inception. You should have done the horn wow, like from the movie. <laughs> Inception. Wow. Highly configurable. Wow. And don't say Snally Gaster again. This is a family show, Mike. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, there's a lot of skills in this world. I'm really impressed with people that both are able to write these incredible tools and also name them with such cool names. Thanks to Mike Buckby, Killian Engler, and Matt Radelak and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our panel discussion, please subscribe to our show. You can find more episodes of the Inside Out Security Show on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, and more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. It helps them discover great discussions like we had today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.